This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Seen through a political or social media lens, Americans seem more divided now than at any time since the Civil War. While our national motto, E Pluribus Unum, had always acknowledged our many different views, faiths, and values, the ubiquity of combative debate and invectives delivered through social media has not merely magnified our perceived differences, but has made it possible to instantaneously produce and consume outrage with the push of a button. How could innovations designed to empower us to communicate more easily have led us to stop listening? And if indeed we aspire to coexist and cooperate with one another, how can we reorient ourselves away from this toxic tribalism and find a psychological framework and vocabulary that embraces our liberal traditions and encourages a successful national community? My guest today is Dr. Arnold Kling, economist and author of The Three Languages of Politics, Talking Across the Political Divide. Now in its third edition, Dr. Kling's book suggests the root of our trends towards tribalism can be traced to the fact that many in the public sphere seek to solidify their status in a tribal group by declaring purity and loyalty to their own group while demonizing the members' beliefs of other groups. Dr. Kling identifies three ideological tribes, progressives, conservatives, and libertarians, each with its own heuristic and vocabulary. Three Languages of Politics seeks to help us each identify our own tribal orientation and vocabulary, understand the toxic dynamics that encourage loyalty to one tribe and hostility towards others, and reorient our communication in a way that offers the possibility to persuade and be persuaded, potentially turning away from outrage and obstinance towards thoughtful coexistence and cooperation. When I return, I'll be joined by economist and author, Dr. Arnold Kling. Hubwonk is a production of Pioneer Institute, a Boston-based think tank that seeks to improve the quality of life in Massachusetts and beyond. Pioneer is a 501c3 organization that relies on your support. Please visit pioneerinstitute.org to make a tax-deductible donation today. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by economist and author, Dr. Arnold Kling. Welcome to Hubwonk, Dr. Kling. Nice to be here, Joe. Well, I'll tell you, Dr. Kling, I've enjoyed reading many of your books, and I found your blog very useful. Um, I want to focus our discussion today uh, on the book you recently released in its third edition, uh, entitled The Three Languages of Politics, Talking Across the Political Divide. Uh, I know it was first released in 2013. Uh, it, it stands alone as, as one uh, uh, relatively short book, but uh, gives us a profound uh, level of insight into our very contentious uh, public and political debate right now. So um, I want to acknowledge to our listeners, you are trained as an economist, but I would characterize this book more as a political psychology. What made you decide to write uh, this book? Well, what I noticed was that political rhetoric wasn't designed to change the mind of anyone. You know, you, you, you think that that's what it's for. If somebody writes a column or they or something like that, they're trying to change somebody's mind. But in fact, it seems that the, they weren't talking to the other side to change their mind, and they weren't talking to the, their own side to change their mind. It was more like they wanted to uh, solidify the minds on their own side, kind of make the, their own side less likely to change its mind, which seemed like a, a, you know, a bad purpose for political rhetoric. 
Indeed. So it sounds uh, what, what you've been hearing is more akin to political rallies rather than uh, political discourse. Uh, and your goal, you want to open minds. That sounds good. Uh, our, our own minds, the minds of our political allies. But you also want to uh, help open the minds of those uh, with a different worldview, a different heuristic, if you will. Very worthy goals. Uh, I want to jump to the uh, themes of the book. You see the world or you see those in the world uh, revolving around three different, completely different axes of understanding. Um, share with our listeners what you see are those three uh, axes of understanding or heuristics that uh, uh, maybe each of us, uh, uh, one or the other, dominates our worldview. Okay, so let's think of three bad things uh, in particular. One is um, uh, oppression. That is one class of people mistreating another class. The second bad is uh, barbarism, people not living up to civilized norms, but reverting to, uh, you know, torture or, or murder or other barbaric acts. And final is coercion, um, where you uh, don't give people the free to, real freedom to choose, but force them to, to do things. So those are all bad. And if, as I described them, uh, we're against all of them. But it turns out that there's a general tendency for regressives, conservatives, and libertarians to each kind of take ownership of one of the, of opposition to one of the bads, and then to accuse people who disagree with them of actually being on the bad side. So if you're a progressive and someone disagrees with you, you think that they're on the side of the oppressors. So the progressive kind of takes ownership of the oppressor-oppressed axis. Conservative takes ownership of the uh, civilization barbarism axis and will accuse the people who disagree with them of being uh, you know, against civilization and being on the side of barbarism. And a libertarian thinks that uh, they have ownership of the liberty coercion access. So people who disagree with them are status. They're people who want to use the power of the state to coerce other people. So we all uh, imagine that our own worldview is, uh, is the right one, but we all want to be reasonable. Why is it that um, we are drawn to listen to the kind of uh, narrative that you describe? What, what compels us to be drawn to one of these three axes? Well, that's, that's a tough question. And as, I, as you mentioned, I went through various editions of the book, and with each one, I tried harder to answer the question. So I ended up delving more and more into the psychology. Um, I think that there are sort of individual reasons uh, why you prefer it just, you know, it's cognitively easier not to deal with the strongest arguments of the other side. Uh, and then there are social reasons. I think if you, uh, in a lot of instances, people are trying to in enhance the status either of their tribe itself or of themselves within a tribe. And focusing on these axes and accusing opponents of being on the other side of these axes uh, can be a useful way to enhance your status within a tribe. So you join a tribe and that means uh, you want to make your tribe stronger and the other weaker. Therefore, you, uh, even if you don't agree lockstep and, and, uh, and barrel with uh, everything in that tribe, uh, it's more useful to promote the, the views more broadly and demonize those who don't agree with you. Okay, let's. Uh, these are very high level uh, conceptual concepts. 
Um, let's take, uh, let's start step on some uh, landmines here and let's take some real world examples of very contentious issues and see how each axis would interpret that particular event. I'll, I'll throw some at you somewhere in the book, some weren't. Uh, let's take Black Lives Matter. How would a conservative, progressive, and a libertarian view uh, the uh, framing of, of Black Lives Matter? Okay, so let's start with the oppressor-oppressed axis, which the progressive would use. That's pretty simple. You just say that uh, Blacks are an oppressed class and uh, other you know, whites have been oppressors of Blacks. So, um, so you take a very favorable view of Black Lives Matter uh, along the oppressor-oppressed axis. Uh, conservatives have this civilization barbarism axis, so they would say, yeah, that's fine that Black Lives Matter, but let's remember that police protect us, that uh, looting and rioting are barbaric acts, and so they're not, so there are reasons to be disturbed about, the, uh, about Black Lives Matter. Uh, for libertarians, I think, the it might depend on on what issues they think about. They, if they think about uh, the police aspect of it, they they a libertarian might say, well, you know, a lot of police procedures are uh, are bad and coercive, and uh, laws are uh, you know, there's an excess of laws, and so a libertarian would tend to want to rein in the police and have uh, fewer laws that would, you know, create confrontations between, uh, you know, everyone in police, but between blacks and police in particular. That's uh, you, you did a very good job of uh, uh, teasing each one out. How about something as uh, broad and sweeping as tax policy? That's something that uh, we see arguments about uh, in, in the news today. How would a libertarian, progressive, and, and conservative view tax policy in general? Okay, well, let's let me try to narrow it down to redistributive tax policy and see if I can do that. And that's not one that's in the book, I think, but I think mm -hmm. I can do it. Um, the oppressor-oppressed model can be used to suggest that uh, people who get rich must be oppressors. They didn't get there by um, um, you know by legitimate means. Uh, so, you know, people who are rich are oppressors, people who are not rich are oppressed. And so uh, progressive tax policy that takes money from the rich and gives to the poor is, uh, you know, kind of offsetting oppressor oppressed. The conservative view is that people who uh, are rich generally earned it. They are, they've made contributions to society. They've, they're making uh, they're being compensated for hard work or uh, or patient investment or clever innovation uh, for kind of sharing their skills with society. So, um, you know, in some sense, uh, you know, redistributive taxation is uh, kind of anti-civilization and uh, works toward barbarism. And of course, you know, for libertarians, it's all simple. Taxation is theft. And so you're, um, you know, it's, it's a form of coercion that you really should try to avoid. Um, I see, again, we could go through a whole host of policy issues, but I see very clearly that uh, you're using the same vocabulary uh, to describe each event. Again, the same access for each uh, worldview. Um, 
well, I'll, I'll confess to having uh, tried to uh, cut through the fog of, of these very different views, though I do lean more towards a conservative libertarian worldview. Uh, I went to a graduate school, uh, uh, Harvard Kennedy School, which is notoriously um, uh, favorable to uh, a more pro progressive worldview. And it was my hope that uh, sitting down, one could use, let's say, science. My undergrad is in engineering, and I, I try to use science to understand whether a, a building's going to stand up or a, a car is going to go. Uh, I wanted to use um, economics as a sort of a common language that, uh, uh, in a sense, policymakers could meet on the field of battle and, and settle their differences with observation or even with theory. Uh, do you see economics as something that uh, is uh, part of the solution or is it just as vulnerable to debate as any other field? Um, I think this is an instance where there's actually, I think this is, you know, various experiments or psychology experiments have found that, that um, people with more cognitive ability, more education and so on are actually better at defending ideas regardless and sort of better more inclined to confirmation bias than people who are less educated or less cognitively skilled so if you're trying to change someone's mind using facts and science it's actually easier to do it with a less educated less you know sort of lower on the IQ scale person because they're they're just they're less likely to use their cleverness to counteract your thinking. Uh, so the examples are like, uh, like on an issue like gun control, uh, people, I think that this is an example where people have you, you know, given the same set of facts to people on two sides of the issue. And, you know, you know some analyses, facts, studies, or, you know, alleged studies and whatever. So you show people the same pieces of paper with the same words on them. And the ones who were for gun control to begin with say, well, this really reinforces the position in favor of gun control. And the people who are against it say, no, this really reinforces the position against gun control. But that tendency is even higher among the sort of more highly educated people. So taking that back to economics, economics can then be a tool used by either side to kind of confirm its own point of view. So if you're progressive, you seize on progressive economic ideas. And if you're conservative, you seize on conservative economic ideas, libertarian seize on libertarian economic ideas. So the hope that that the facts or the ideals itself uh, will settle the issue, unfortunately, doesn't work uh, well in that case. Uh, that definitely aligns with my, uh, my experience. Uh, we even had a few courses where you had a, a conservative and progressive and a third very, very progressive uh, uh, economist teaching a class uh, all together and sort of in, in sense embracing the fact there are many ways to look at the, at the field. I, I want to address the fact that then if, if education or um, cognitive ability doesn't inoculate us from these, um, these uh, uh, axes of, of, of perception, uh, what does one do if one wants to aspire at least to uh, being more open-minded or, or leaving one's access or at least understanding the other two or if there are indeed other two? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, and I, I, by the way, I think, you know, since writing the book, I think that it's not clear that everyone falls within those three. Uh, and most people, you know, if they consider themselves carefully, would, they, they certainly wouldn't jump on the axes and say, oh, yeah, that's my axis. They might notice that, wow, yeah, I've in the past, I've used that. But then they'd say, well, if I really think about it, my own 
views are more, more nuanced. Uh, I don't know what advice works. Uh, I know what you kind of want to get to. There's a, a pretty good new book by Julia Galef called The Scout Mindset. And she defined, and she talks, and the term mindset is, is exactly right. She talks about the difference between being a scout where you just want to explore the territory and see what's there versus a soldier where your role in the in territory is defend what's yours and, and keep other people out. Uh, so a scout mindset is you know, you're very open-minded. You're not convinced you're right. Uh, you're really operating from a position of self-doubt. With a soldier mindset, you're trying to act as if you're absolutely sure you're right and your main when you encounter someone who disagrees with you 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 react you know, with very strong defenses and so on so um from that perspective the key is to kind of let down your defenses to sort of be constantly alert to well the other person could be right. I could certainly be wrong. And to be just thinking in those terms, what would make me wrong? What would make the other person right? So it's a mindset. I'm not sure. I, I think she's absolutely right that that's the mindset you need to adopt if you want to uh, avoid being in this kind of tribal mentality. Uh, how to do that is is a challenge. But I think that that's the the key. That's a great framing of uh, a scout and soldier. I, I guess I would characterize myself as a scout. What what attributes does each axis um, use to um, demonize the other side? Um, you know. How, yeah, well, how... Okay. Again, I think that they that, that they they try as a way of simplifying things. So uh, so if I if I were in scout mindset, let's say I'm a libertarian and I encounter a progressive. Uh, let's say is arguing for progressive taxation or for something else that uh, that doesn't appeal to me. If I were in scout mindset, I'd try to say, well, what you know, wh how could they be right? What are this? What are some? What are what are the strongest points of of their argument that they could make? Uh, what are the circumstances under which I would change my mind and agree with them? Uh, if I'm in soldier mindset, then what, what I do is I use the axes. I just say, they just want to use power. They're just power hungry. They might say they want to help the poor, but nah, nah, they're just, they, all they want is power for themselves. And I could find evidence for that. I mean, uh, I think there's a Wall Street Journal editorial today about the uh, tax proposals in the, you know, the latest Democratic bills. And they point, and they point out all the ways in which these tax proposals actually, you know, benefit wealthy constituents, and then say, you know, how can you really say that you're uh, for poor poor people? You're just you know, you're just using power to benefit your friends, uh, and that that may or may not be the right framing, but that but that is kind of how you how you operate more in soldier mode. Uh, Indeed, and one of the interesting insights, uh, I don't know if you want to address it more deeply, um, the irony that each team or each axis seems to think they understand the motivations of the other teams better than the, the, those other teams themselves. In other words, I've often yeah. had progressives explain to me what's really at the heart of libertarianism uh, as if they understand my worldview 
better than I understand my worldview. Say more about uh, why yeah. uh, that and might that, be. They'll typically say, uh, you know, it's libertarianism is a cover for uh, oppression. That you really, you're, you, what you're really doing is perpetuating the the, you know, the evil class status that exists. You're an apologist for rich people and so on, or you want people to starve. I mean, you can hear that. Um, so that that I think is maybe the most interesting psychological uh, characteristic that I found when I was doing the book. And it's called the law of asymmetric insight. But a way to put it is that, again, like you say, you what you do is instead of saying that your opponent is well mo- motivated and you know has some you know and is coming from a different perspective you say that the person who disagrees with you don't doesn't even know really the true reason they disagree with you that you understand it and the motives are bad you know you understand their true motives and their motives are bad that's the mindset that you get into and to me, like, for instance, every Paul Krugman op-ed piece pretty much says that. I understand the true motives of conservatives, and they're bad. And I used to say when Rush Limbaugh was alive that, that he, every broadcast that he gave was about how he understood the true motives of the libs, and they're bad. Uh, and that's really one of the most dangerous and unfortunate tendencies in our uh, tribalism. Indeed. Um, uh, more than just merely saying that they're bad, they're, this also leads to uh, a concept in your book that you talked about, um, uh, in a sense, policing uh, your your side and trying to silence the other side. So beyond the, the Krugmans and the Limbaugh's, uh, we have more than, more than a few people who would like to shut down the other side. They, they create boogeyman's uh, uh, it could be Fox News. If if you're you don't care for the conservative perspective, it could be uh, academics in in, in in elite universities. If you're um, more conservative, um, say more about this impulse to not merely join one team but to eliminate the other. Yeah, that's become stronger. Um, I, I, we could broadly call that illiberalism, you know, because liberalism, you know, going back to John Stuart Mill, was like, you know, let's you know, listen to the other side and, uh, you know, answer ideas with other ideas. But um, for a variety of reasons, we don't live in a world these days that's friendly to liberalism. Um, I suspect it has to do with the media environment that we're confronted uh, too immediately and too uh, directly with points of view that bother us. Um, and, you know, so, you know, it used to be very, you know, that most of the time we were tuned out to politics and to disagreement, but now at least for some people, uh, it's just, you can't avoid it. It's like, you know, you, you, you pick up your phone and you, uh, you see something and, and, you know, even if you were, you're not inclined to follow the other side, in fact, maybe especially if you're not inclined to follow them closely, you'll just see them as caricatured by people on your side. And so I think what sells on uh, on all sorts of media, but especially social media, is descriptions of outrageous acts by people on the other side. 
And, you know, we're, we're kind of addicted to seeing those and saying, oh, look how bad they are. And we're, I think we get rewarded for publicizing those and attacking those. So we, we kind of see the worst of the other side and we get uh, riled up about it. And there's this mechanism that kind of keeps reinforcing that behavior. Indeed. So uh, I think as a scout versus a soldier, I'm already outnumbered, but uh, um, social media seems to I, be... I should warn you that Julia says that one of the characteristics to, to worry about uh, to avoid being in soldier mindset is a characteristic of believing that you're a scout. <laughs> Good. Touche there. Okay. I'm, I'm a, a soldier in scouts, uh, uh clothing here. Um, but I, I will say, um, you know, for what it's worth, I know you are, have, been on other podcasts, but I think the podcast medium is, 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 is a, a good one. Uh, I, I don't say it's the opposite of a, a Twitter rage, but it's a, in a sense, a, a, a slower way of looking at the world, which is my segue of coming up to a, a different concept you introduced in your book. You uh, talked about uh, slow political thinking versus fast political thinking. I think you touched on it when you were talking about the uh, pernicious effect of uh, social media on, on uh, average minds. Can you say more about that? Yeah, and I would say actually empirically, I, I uh, this summer I, I set up this crazy idea of fantasy intellectual teams, which is a way of scoring and trying to reward people for you know showing scout mindset and so on. And what I found was that that really increased my uh, following of podcasts, and I think it's because. Uh, a podcast, you know there's another person, and so you tend to, to avoid the kind of uh, demonization that you would get into on Twitter, where you're sort of, you're by yourself, and then you know you're going to be liked by your, uh, uh, by the people in your tribe. So podcasting kind of keeps people more honest. It does indicate that, um, that that's a better medium than some of these other media in terms of keeping people uh, on their better behavior. If we're going to talk about uh, tribes, I think one of the steps in understanding uh, where the other side might have been right, you mentioned that earlier, you have to allow for the possibility that those people with other views may be right. Uh, share with us what you, you talked about in the book, for instance, um, uh, the progressive worldview actually uh, nailed it in the 60s with the Civil Rights Act, whereas uh, in that same time, conservatives and libertarians uh, got it rather wrong uh, and missed the boat. Uh, share with our listeners where, uh, let's say, libertarians or conservatives have gotten it right or another example of where progressives really got it right. Um, let's see. Well, one example of where libertarians, I think, were right is in, uh, and this may be an odd one, is because the libertarians are skeptical of government and aware that government makes mistakes, they're aware that government makes mistakes overseas as well as domestically. So they tend to be uh, they, they tend to be dubious of intervention at a time when uh, other people might be all riled up for intervention. So they probably were more skeptical of, let's say, the Afghan war uh, than, than other people, because everyone else kind of got riled up about you know, how bad the Taliban were and you know, how bad 9-11 was. Conservatives, I think, probably are more right about um, 
I think uh, you know, things like the Black Lives Matter thing that we really should be focusing on civilization versus barbarism issues and not run everything through the oppressor oppressed. Uh, and even, and I think even libertarians who try to, you know, be hyper, focus their criticism on police, I think are kind of missing the boat a little bit. Uh, we're running uh, uh, up against our, our time together. Uh, so I want to bring in this one last uh, um uh, genuine question. Uh, your book, your initial book was written before um, a fairly divisive character of Donald Trump was on the scene. And as far to my ear and listening to what I have listened to of, of his uh, political rhetoric, uh, he doesn't seem to fit on any access in my view. I think he has something for everyone on the uh, on each and has something to alienate uh, someone on each of those axes as well. Uh, does your um, global heuristic explain that phenomena in any meaningful way? Only in the sense that they're, uh, that you have tribalism, but he do, does reorient the tribalism uh, partly because he makes it, everything so personal. You know, it's all about him and support for him and opposition to him as a person. In that sense, he is like a kind of a, a uh, you know, a Latin American populist type leader. Um, and the other... It, yeah, so that it is different, and I think it it speaks to a different divide that has emerged, uh, the divide between people who are college educated and think because of that that they're kind of superior in some way, and then people who really resent the way the college educated people try to lord it over them. So that's kind of a new divide, maybe a new axis that emerged. In that sense, uh, the book has gotten out of date. Indeed, it might introduce a fourth axis. We um, we talked a little bit about this sort of loss of faith of quote unquote elites or leaders, uh, and sort of the breakdown of of confidence in anything. Really, um, I won't say uh, broadly, it's it's uh, conspiracy theorists. But we had Martin Gurry on the show, and um, he talked about the power of information to uh, uh, have us somewhat lose trust in institutions. But um, you know, there's really no equivalent. Um, dynamic that's going to help us rebuild, let's say, more trustworthy institutions. Uh, you know, I, I, this seems to be moving in one direction, away from away from trust and, and towards uh, essentially uh, um, tribalism. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of a central problem, if not the central problem that we face in our society today. And uh, I think a lot of the problems, the institutions themselves have become corrupted. They, you know, any institution can be gamed. I mean, I, I worked in business a lot and, you know, you have employees trying to game the system of compensation so that uh, instead of trying, instead of using the system as an incentive to, you know, do better for the company, they figure out ways to uh, work as little as possible, but still get the most compensation possible. Um, and I think over time that's happened to our institutions. And uh, I also just for a whole in a whole variety of ways and for reasons, so, most of which I probably don't understand, universities, journalism and academia have all become corrupted in recent years. And I think that's a big challenge. They're not selecting the best people 
uh, and they're not elevating the best ideas uh, the, the way I think they I think they used to be better at that. And that's uh, that's a I think a major challenge for our society. Indeed, I would say from my point of view, they're not even trying to uh, move away from this illiberal trend. Uh, uh, instead. Um, trying to enforce uh, orthodoxy or ideologies. It's, it's yeah. very, very strange. Um, okay, uh, so we're near to the end of our time together. I just want to make sure our listeners who, who enjoyed what you said uh, on our show today, where they can find your books, your blog, uh, and learn more about your work. Okay, well, the, um, the Three Languages book is actually on a website called libertarianism.org, and you can get it for free if you search around there, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and my blog, just search for Arnold Kling blog. I'm sure you can find it. Uh, and I'm all, I also have a Substack. Uh, so if you search for Arnold Kling on Substack, you can find that. Well, I'm, uh, I think our listeners will enjoy it uh, because your work doesn't just have uh, your ideas, but it has lots of references to um, uh, other uh, important thinkers uh, where you've um, uh, found some of your insight. So it's a really a, a, a treasure trove of, of information. So thank you for joining us today and sharing your time today, Dr. Kling. You've, you've really, um, I think, made our uh, listeners uh, think. Enjoyed it. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would help others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. And of course, naturally, we're happy if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about future episodes, please reach out to me at Hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.